Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Welcome to another edition of Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. This is a raw bone and wicked good podcast about classic pro wrestling, usually from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Before I get rolling, I want to encourage you to join our Facebook group because, once again, we took questions from the podcast. If you go to Facebook, uh, type in Stick to Wrestling, just join the group. I I accept everyone. Um, Also, if you want to follow me on Twitter, just put in the name John McAdam and follow the guy with the uh, Stick to Wrestling avatar. Our logo is his avatar, excuse me. And finally, if you'd like to donate to Stick to Wrestling, use PayPal and donate to Pro Wrestling Archives at gmail.com. And with that, uh, I want to bring on my occasional, actually more or less usual co-host now, Steve Generelli. Steve, how are you? Well, I'm good. It's good to be back. And uh, I wanted to say as a kind of a little PSA here, uh, not sticking to wrestling. Uh, I, I was going to say you, you're doing better than good. <laughs> that, that's right. Uh, if A few weeks ago, I, I told uh, John and Lou that uh, had a little health issue. Uh, uh, so I'm telling you guys out there, if you, especially you guys <laughs> that are of a certain age, uh, maybe your 40s or 50s, uh, yeah, get your PSA looked at. Um, I had my, like a really high number on mine. I had to have a MRI done. I had to have a biopsy done. But I met with a doctor today. And I got a clean bill of health. And my wife is telling me today that uh, she's going to go and have a mammogram tomorrow, which means she's going to get her uh, jug smashed into a photocopier. So uh, she says if, if they can do it, then we can do a PSA test. So you guys go out there and get it done is what I'm trying to say. But basically, what Steve is trying to say is he had a cancer scare. Okay. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And it's done. It was just a scare. He's okay. And I mean, just excellent news, Steve. No, it's it's great news. And, you know, I, I'm um, I'm going to be 60 in a couple of years and uh, like to keep on living, especially for this podcast. I think uh, a lot of people live for this podcast. I think, I think I think a lot of the younger guys listening, you know, with, with their, their wives and girlfriends, uh, they want to be around and we want you to be around to listen to the show. So go and get yourselves checked out. That's right. I cannot have my numbers dropping on this <laughs> podcast. Go get yourself checked out. Steve, w- w- would you like to hear an, a-, a cancer anecdote? I would love to hear one. And I really want Barry Rose and Jeff Bowdrin to listen to this because it's about a girlfriend I used to have. Her name was Debbie. And I nicknamed her Debbie Cancer after two incidents. Number one, her dad was out with a friend of the family and they're playing golf with a couple of other guys. And this guy just drops, like, boom, drops <laughs> to the ground. And, like, you know, they, he comes out of it. They get him up. He's like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm okay. And they're like, no, no, you're going to the hospital. This guy, as Debbie put it, was loaded with cancer. Those are the three words she used, and he never <laughs> got out of the hospital. Right? <laughs> wow. You can tell she wasn't in the medical profession. But anyway. So she comes up to me and she's like, it would make a lot of, of it, it was very important to me that you come to his wake because they're friends of the family and you're my boyfriend. We're really close, yada, yada. I'm like, okay, right? I didn't really know what a wake was. There's a dead body in the room, Steve. <laughs> There's a dead body in the room. You had never been with a dead body before? How could this be? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm trying. Well, Katie Vick aside. Uh, <laughs> well, well, I'm, I'm the son of a florist, so I had to deliver funeral arrangements to funeral homes. So I had seen a lot of dead bodies. I just I'm a weird right. person. I'm sorry. So maybe a couple of months later, like I, I call Debbie for whatever reason. We're doing something. Her mom's like, Debbie can't go out tonight. She's going to call you when she's ready. I'm like, what's going on? She'll call you when she's ready. She'll talk to you. <laughs> The next day, she calls me, and she's uber upset because there's a lump in her arm, right? Uh Uh-oh, uh-oh. And, well, yeah, something to get uber upset about. And she's like, okay, you know, tomorrow I'm going to an having an emergency. uh, What's that thing where they see – you just had one where they see if you have cancer. Oh, a a, um, biopsy. 
biopsy. Thank you. I don't know why I couldn't think of it. And she's like, I'm going tomorrow for a, an emergency biop- biopsy. And I'm like, oh, do you want me to go with you? And she's like, no, my mom's going. <laughs> so I go from the guy who's being nice, part of the family, has to see the dead body to this. <laughs> Thank God I'm out of that game. <laughs> Are you ready to talk some pro wrestling, Steve? Let's let's talk some wrestling, please. <laughs> okay, Steve, now well, we're going to do some house cleaning here. I know a lot of you have been saying, okay, where is my WWF Spring 1983 podcast from Stick to Wrestling? Where is it? You guys are way overdue. I, I'm aware of this. We were going to do it this week. But for but we had to change recording schedules. We just don't have the time. I've got over 40 minutes of audio. We've got two long shows coming up reviewing WWF Spring 1983. Then, so I want to do it next week, but then Handbrake, which is what I use to uh, transfer my DVD files onto my Google Drive so that Lou can make them part of the show, like just doesn't want to do it. So I mailed Lou a physical DVD today as if we're still living in the Bronze Age, and hopefully he'll get it on time, and we will have WWF 1983, spring of 1983, next week, but I'm not promising anything. But Steve came up with a really good idea. Steve, what what did you want to do? Well, we hadn't really uh, talked about ECW, and, and I, we ha- I don't think we'd really been in the 90s for a while, so I wanted to uh, – uh, address the ECW in the 90s, and John uh, almost immediately sent me a file, sent me a, a copy of the very first ECW episode, which kind of blew me away. Yeah, this was a, um, by the way, I want to mention this. Uh, I was watching Raw, a Raw from 1998 today, and I was like, man, I miss the 90s. I miss George. They went with everything. You can, now you get arrested for wearing George, but by the fashion police. But <laughs> uh, yeah, I was like, oh, wow. You know, I know about this, uh, this pilot that they put out that when Todd Gordon was still running the thing, when they were trying to get on uh, what was then Sports Channel America, even if they could just get Sports Channel Philadelphia, they would settle for it. And it's available on YouTube. I'll actually put the link up. Uh, in the group, I had David Ferguson ask me to do that so he could watch stuff before we talk about it. So I'll be doing that for David. And yeah, the, the pilot episode of ECW that was recorded October 1992. Yeah, it, um, it has, it begins with, uh, Jay Sully is the host and he's dressed up a lot, a lot like, uh, Vince McMahon would be dressed up in the 80s or the 70s. What was with Jay Sully's hair? <laughs> what was that? It looked, it looked like a second grader, but I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and it, well, he looked like Vince. De- definitely didn't sound like Vince. And uh, his sidekick, his color man, was a guy by the name of Stevie Wonderful, who uh, looked like a poor man's, a very poor man's Diamond Dallas Page. Yeah, I came away from that. As soon as I saw that, I'm like, I am going to be so hating this Stevie Wonderful guy for the next 45 <laughs> minutes or whatever it was. He, it turned out he wasn't that bad. Uh, as a matter of fact, you know, in the middle of it, I'm like, wow, this guy's not bad at all. Uh, but then I kind of changed my mind after I saw what his gimmick was. Um, but it, it, you know, one thing I didn't like about it, right? Every independent show had to have the old, you know, Bobby Heenan and Gorilla Monsoon team, like the the straight man Gorilla Monsoon and the wisecracking guy Bobby Heenan. And I'm always like, you know, Stevie Wonderful, like I said, he wasn't terrible. He wasn't over the top. But, you know, Stevie, get it through your head. You're not funny like Bobby Heenan. Don't try to be. Well, one thing I noticed about this Jay Sully, the the color man, or not the color man, the play-by-play guy, and it gave me a new appreciation for, for Vince McMahon or one of the old school play-by-play guys. I mean, this guy is is calling pretty bad matches, like mediocre matches, maybe even poor matches. And you can tell, like, he's like a fan like us. And and because the matches are bad, he's like drifting off into dreamland. And (laughs) and every once in a while, he kind of comes around again. But, uh, you know, know, I'm sure Vince, when he was watching all the squash matches in Allentown or, you know, where they filmed the matches, he was he was you know, very alert and on top of things and saying, Oh, look at that Beal, look at that, look at that hip toss. And, and this guy is like falling asleep in his chair. So, uh, it really, uh, it took a while for him to kind of find himself on this show. 
I'm not exactly sure when the WWF went into post-production for their commentary and audio. I want to say probably when Championship Wrestling turned into superstars. That's a guess on my part. But, I mean, Vince did have that advantage. Like, he didn't have to, you know, go, you know, he could take a break. He could do he could do a, a do-over, whatever he needed to do. Well, actually, actually, I do know uh, when Bruno left WWF, like April of 88 is when they started to do all the commentary in Connecticut. And uh, ah. prior to that, when they did Superstars and Challenge on the Road, all the commentary was really live, which is I know it's hard to believe, but they did it live at the time. All right. Well, one thing I liked about this show is that. The, the, they had one thing that's difficult about having a wrestling show on television. You have to have an audience, and it's not always easy to get an audience. And let me go back a little bit. When Eric Bischoff took the tapings for NWA or WCW Worldwide Wrestling and took them into Disneyland, right. I mean, the hardcore fans had an absolute fit. <laughs> I was I felt like I was the only one who didn't because because I had produced wrestling for television. Well, not we'll call it that. I mean, I knew it was hard to get a crowd. I mean, even if you offered free tickets, whatever, you know, you still couldn't get enough people in the building to make it look good. And when Eric moved the the tapings to Disney and he had, you know, families coming in and out and he had a lively full crowd, it made sense. And here they had a lively full crowd. They went to a youth center. They had a lot of kids there. The kids are having a blast. Like they get an A plus from me on that. Well, well, you can tell that it's quite different than the ECW of the years to come because, uh, oh yeah, it's like you say. I mean, the, the the audience. I mean, the little you do see is is like practically all children, which is not exactly what you're thinking of when you think of ECW. And in fact, uh, when I was watching this, and it was very poorly lit, this show. Yes, this was kind of that's a, where they get a D, <laughs> right? Well, this was kind of a throwback to those old uh, Savoldi's TV tapings at the Kutcher's in the Catskills, and uh, they had a lot of kids there in those tapings as well. So it's definitely not a hardcore ECW; it's more just Eastern Championship Wrestling at this point. I mean, you know, I I use the term in its infancy sometimes on this program. This wasn't even infancy. This was like, you know, the birth, really. Um, They were, you know, putting out a pilot and and trying to get on cable TV. And, hey, cable TV needs inventory, okay? Maybe you won't be on 8 o'clock on Monday night, but, you know, you'll settle for being on 4 o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday. And that's what they were trying to do. I mean, I don't think I'd even heard of ECW October 1992. And I got all... All the newsletters, and I think I was a subscriber to the Observer at this time. And I, you know, I mean, I know that they covered it, but it was just something uh, definitely not uh, a lot of people didn't know about it. And and I went back and I looked at some of the results, and it looks like prior to this show, they may have done some you know, uh, ECW shows for a few months earlier. I did see some notice, notable names on these shows like Ivan Koloff and Nikolai Volkov. Uh, I guess if you were Russian, you'd be on the show. But uh, they they just had some, some, some name wrestlers on some of their prior shows. But this was, you know, like John said, this is the pilot and this is the one we watched. Yeah. And I mean, let's face it, you know, 1992 – there are so many wrestling promotions trying to get off the ground. I, I know all about that because we felt like a lot of people felt like there was a void that needed to be filled, that that WWF was what it was. It was a wrestling promotion aimed at the kids. By October 1992, we had definitely all given up on WCW. Prematurely, I might add, but we gave up on them. So, like I said, we're, 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 there's a void out there for people who liked pro wrestling, and a lot of guys tried jumping in that pool. And Todd Gordon may have been the most successful of them all, either Todd Gordon or Jim Cornette. Yeah, and I think uh, a, a guy that you mentioned last week in passing on the podcast, uh, Joel Goodhart, I think he deserves a, an honorable mention here because uh, he had put together a whole bunch of shows from 1989 to the early 90s. Uh, he had on uh, uh, the very first one that I could find was a show headlined by Don Morocco against David Schultz. That was April of 89 in New- Newark, Delaware. But a lot of these shows were in the Philly area, and they had lots of well-known talent. Uh, that, that infamous show where Buddy Rogers was supposed to 
face Buddy Landell that got canceled because Buddy Rogers passed away. Uh, that was one. Of course, the Sheik wrestled uh, Abdullah in a cage match one on one of Joel's last shows, I believe. And but I think, uh, like you say, there was a hunger, there was a need for more hardcore wrestling out there. Uh, guys that had grown up watching, say, uh, Bruno against Koloff in the cage. Uh, they wanted to see, and of course, NWA was very bloody in the 80s. They wanted to see that hardcore wrestling, not the kind of family-friendly wrestling that both uh, both of the major companies had leaned into by the early 90s. Joel was a really good guy. I, I knew Joel, and he had a very unique way of promoting his shows. He had a radio show, one in Philadelphia. I uh-huh. think it was just called Wrestling Radio uh-huh. with a woman named Carmella. And, uh, I mean, he used that to promote his own shows. And obviously, he had a whole lot of listeners, and he figured tried to figure out how to monetize the thing. Joel was funny. I mean, Joel, I went to a benefit show in Philadelphia, November 1990, for one of my friends. And, and Joel, like, you know, why aren't you coming to my shows? Why don't I see you at my shows? I'm like, Joel, because I live eight hours away. It <laughs> might have something to do with you not getting $35 out of me. <laughs> But yeah, at this show, Joel announces that, you know, his promotion is having a show wherever in Philadelphia. And he's like, and the main event. Now, mind you, Steve, this is 1990. Okay. Mm-hmm. The main event, Abdullah the Butcher against the original Sheik. <laughs> and he's like saying this, like, I have a time machine that'll take you back so you can see Luthes and Buddy Rogers. I, I would have popped for it. <laughs> We all we all were just kind of laughing about it. Ah, <laughs> uh, but anyway, so yeah, the, I thought the production it definitely needed a lot more light. But again, they they did a very big thing. They had a big crowd, and I thought what they did was smart. They're just like, okay, well, we'll have a free show at this youth center, and we'll invite all the kids, and, and that came out really good, in my opinion. Now we have to talk about the wrestling. <laughs> right, right. So, so much for trying to keep this positive. So, yeah, so the first match we had was uh, King Kalua against uh, the Iron Man, Tommy Cairo. Yeah, uh, Mike Kalua, I was surprised to see him. He was pretty uh, prominent in Northeast Independence in the late 80s and early 90s. And he's doing a, a gimmick now, King Kalua. And it's like sometimes these gimmicks, they, they just don't come across. They come across really minor league on an indie show or, you know, 90s Memphis. And this this is exactly what that looked like. Well, he had been, um, he had been on a lot of those DC Drake independent shows and uh, – in the Northeast in the eighties. And he had even done a lot of the Savoldi tapings too. So mm-hmm. he was kind of a known name and Tommy Cairo, uh, you know, I guess he was well known on the independent circuit, but this match was just like, you know, very, very, uh, I don't know you give it a half a star on the Meltzer rating. It was, pr- it was pretty low. I, I would say, yeah, it was not a good match. It wasn't the worst thing in the world. One thing I, I noticed when, when Tommy Cairo, who is the baby face, is on his way to the ring, he's slapping everyone's hand on the way to the ring, right. like, you know, high-fiving the fans. And look, look, if you are an independent wrestler listening to this, you're trying to make it, and you're on an indie show and you're a good guy, don't do that. Don't slap, don't high-five people on the way to the ring because it just it makes you just like everybody else, and it kind of makes you very uncool, in my opinion. And I was saying that 30 years ago. You know, what I thought when I watched the match was at the end of the match, they did a a little interview at ringside with Tommy Cairo, who won the match. And he did this really, really kind of a good promo, a hot promo, uh, uh, fan favorite promo. And like the people were cheering and everything. And I thought to myself, they probably should have done that before the match you know, get the fans really into hit into, into him kind of know, know who he is. And then that might've made the match a little bit more exciting, but they kind of didn't reverse. You know, I have always been a proponent of pre-match interviews. And even in a, a situation like that, you're, you're telling the people, look, here's what, who I am and why you either want to see me win or lose this match, especially again, a startup promotion like this one. Yeah, I, I mean, it just it didn't make much sense. Like it, they're rooting for him, uh, cheering for him, giving almost giving him a standing ovation at the end, and then they bring out somebody else for the next match. It was you know over and done with kind of. So, but the next match on the card we has the Super Destroyers or the Super D's 
against uh, it was uh, Larry Winters and Jimmy Janetti. Yeah, Jimmy Janetti looks like he should be sitting on a couch with Beavis <laughs> on one hand and Butthead on the other. My goodness. <laughs> Well, Larry Winters had been around quite a while. I know. Yes. Uh, and, and Northeast veteran. And I found out who the Super Ds were. I did a little research. Uh, one was former WWF jobber, uh, AJ Petruzzi. And, oh, wow. And the other guy was Doug Stahl, whoever that is. <laughs> I sure. don't know who Doug Stahl is. But but the, the thing that I came away with in this match, uh, uh, the Super Ds were kind of like a, um, a very, very poor man's version of the old executioners from the WWF. But instead of being this large, imposing team and scary team that just dominated these guys were like two chicken shit heels in mass that were just, you know, the, the biggest you know, putzes in the world. Uh, they were just terrible. So no, they they were. Um, and you know, by 1992, the mask guy gimmick, at least in the United States, was over and done with. Even though in 1992, I used one, and we had a guy. The guy's name was the Scorpio. He knew how to act like a total weirdo, <laughs> and his manager would explain, yeah. There are people out there. We don't want them knowing where he is or how to locate him. <laughs> right, right. And I, 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 someone suggested it to me. I'm like, you know what? I like that so much. We're going to go with it. But that's the only time you can have a mass wrestler anymore. Yeah, I, I, it it turned out. I mean, years later, I mean, all, a lot of the middleweights and cruiserweights, a lot of the, of course, Lucha Libre guys were mass wrestlers, and, and they kind of brought it back to a point where. It was kind of fun again, and guys like uh, you know Jushin Liger, Liger would be a uh, an example of somebody that made it work too. But but those were kind of the ex- extreme uh, rarities on that. Yeah, I mean it's different if you're a lucha guy because then that's really who you are. But if you're just another American guy in a mask, I mean that that died in the eighties, right? Right, and, and they had uh, the uh, the super deeds had this terrible manager. I'm trying to to uh, Hunter Q. Robbins. Yeah, yeah. Did, did do we know him by another name, or did he have any success somewhere else? Uh, no, he did not. He on this night, he actually got a tiny little bit of mic time and he wasn't that bad. But usually he his gimmick was like he was this well-dressed man who spoke like a, what's his name? Marvin the Martian from the Bugs Bunny cartoons. Right, right. Yeah. He, he looked a little bit like uh, Jameson from the WWF. Uh, yes, I didn't think of that. Yeah, but, uh, you know, kind of a, just a awkward uh, type of a guy, but... <laughs> I mean, you're just like, okay, you know, wh- exactly what is he bring to the table that, you know, you couldn't find someone funnier slash more qualified. Like, I just don't see how this guy had his job. Maybe I'm guessing for real. He was friends with Todd Gordon. That's the only thing I can come up with. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so so then moving along to our third match, we had the uh, Glenn Osborne, who's the TV champ against none other than Jimmy Superfly Snuka. Wait till you see this Glenn Osborne guy. If you have not watched this, if you want to check out the link, I I was more than just a little bit confused by like what this dude was supposed to be. When when he came out, I, I, I at first I thought he was just trying to be like an Ultimate Warrior ripoff, but you know, upon further inspection, he was more like maybe a Hurricane Helms <laughs> pre pre ripoff. I it felt like he was a thinner Gene Simmons. <laughs> could be, could be. I, I didn't get it, and he was the baby face. Like that was the that was the real curveball that this guy was the baby face. Yeah, and uh, you know, and Snuka Snuka here, it, 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 he did a promo before the match that I thought was kind of effective. You know, he, they were turning him into a real mega heel before the match, and he was eating an apple, and he's just being really uh, kind of like look really nasty and everything. And but by the time he got to the ring, he just was moving so slowly and. He, he just it didn't look anything like prime Jimmy Snuka. He was just kind of going through the motions. So that was a, a bit of a disappointment. Well, you got to figure, I mean, Snuka was in his 40s when he came to the WWF. So now he's in his 50s. Right. It, and he was like trying to be like 1981 Georgia Championship Wrestling Jimmy Snuka, which to me makes no sense. You're, you're using Jimmy Snuka incorrectly. I know it's 1992 and 1982 was a long time ago, uh, but 
you know, he's a legend in the Northeast. You can, I'm sure they had him on because they could, that's one thing they could sell sports channel on. Hey, we've got Jimmy Snooker. You know who he is, right? And then, then you're using him as the bad guy when he's known in the Northeast as, as the legendary good guy. And you could have pushed that, you know, hey, it well, you know, not even eight years ago, this guy was main eventing the Philadelphia Spectrum. And now he's decided to join Eastern Championship Wrestling. I, I felt that um, the announcers did a really poor job trying to get get over. I mean, yeah, they call him a legend a couple of times, but they should have been like telling more of a story. Like, you know, he's here in this promotion for a reason. He, uh, you know, he's trying to, you know, show he still has it, or he's trying to, uh, you know, do, he's trying to do something. There's got to be a reason for why he's here. And and the announcers, you know, throughout this whole thing, like like they're t- saying that Glenn Osborne was the TV champ. And they were saying how good he was. Well, they never said, well, he beat so-and-so or he beat this guy or beat that guy. Same thing with the Super Ds before. They were supposed to be the tag team champions. And they kept saying how how difficult they were, how tough they were. But they never said who they beat to win the title. So I know it was a pilot episode. I know, uh, I guess we weren't supposed to know all this inside stuff. But, you know, it would have at least made some sense if they said who, who they beat or, you know, why they were so formidable. Yeah, but you know what? Here's where I disagree. If you say, okay, here's who Glenn Osborne's beaten. It's either a bunch of unknown guys from, <laughs> you know, indies or, you know, you're making stuff up. Like, right. uh, who is that guy in Georgia? El Mongol. Oh, he re- held Bruno Sammartino to a 60 minute draw in Madison Square Garden. Right. So either way, I, I think you're better off just not acknowledging. Yeah. It. Well, and that's what they did. And, uh, so that was that was that match, and then we had um, the Kodiak Bear, who had his own manager, the Cosmic Commander. Commander, right? Versus. Let me tell you something. Right. If you're on a show with two managers, and Hunter Q. Robbins is the better manager, <laughs> you're not a very good manager. Yeah, yeah. The Cos- this guy. <laughs> Where do I even begin, Steve? He he was he was trying to channel the Grand Wizard in one way or another, but he was like, uh, imagine like a six foot four Grand Wizard. It didn't, didn't make much sense. It's like it's like the Grand Wizard of Wrestling, Ernie Roth, came back to life, and you put him in a Macy's, and then you gave him a whole bunch of LSD <laughs> and put on whatever you want and do whatever you want. This guy, I, I mean, I'm making jokes. It was disgraceful. If I'm a promoter there's no way i'm having this on my show and again we'll have the link up you can take a look i mean this this was embarrassing this was this was way more embarrassing than anything i can think of that the wwf did in 90 in 92 and that includes like papa shango putting a spell on ultimate warrior but I, I would say of the four matches on the show that this was the best uh, best wrestling match. The Kodiak Bear against uh, the Sandman, who had his own manager or valet in Peaches. Yes, and the first time I saw uh, Sandman uh, on that 1990 indie, uh, and they announced him, and he's got the surfer boy gimmick, and they say, and his valet, Vision! I'm like, is her name Bitchin'? What? <laughs> I thought that for years. It's like, no, Peaches, dude. Peaches. Peaches, yes. Uh, yeah, because he's doing the surfer guy gimmicks. Like, oh, bitching, man. I, I thought that was your name. <laughs> well, uh, uh, at first, I thought he was Sandy Beach when he came out with that body glove outfit on. I, I oh. he, he didn't look at anything like the uh, beer-swilling, uh, kendo stick-wielding Sandman of years later. No, he didn't. Sandy Beach, there's a name from the past. <laughs> yeah, he uh I think he had been on uh, Abrams UWF shows and it's funny you mentioned like that this show was on Sports Channel like a year or so after uh, Abrams failed the UWF. You you figure that uh, they wouldn't want to do anything with wrestling after the UWF it was such a flop. Uh, you know what? I, I'm not sure what the UWF did for ratings. I know they had that free show on where the, the big lore was uh, he was reuniting the skyscrapers. Blackjack something or other? Blackjack Brawl. Thank you. Yeah, so I, I had heard that did decent ratings. So maybe Sports Channel was interested, you know, at the right price for wrestling. 
you know, I, I'm sure that Sports Channel was happy that they had a show on with, you know, name talent. They had, uh, you know, Captain Lou and Bruno and B. Brian Blair and a bunch of other known names. Mr. Wonderful was on there, too. But uh, but this show, at least they had Snuka and and they, were, they definitely had the potential to have Morocco on a future show because he worked on some of these early, early shows for them. So um, so I can see maybe that's what was, you know, looking up for a Sports Channel on that. Do you remember? I, I for a minute I thought it was Sandy Beach, and now I think it's Stevie Ray. When Steve Williams just went nuts and started beating the crap out of some guy for real. <laughs> Have you seen that match? I, I think I did at one point, but I can't remember who it was. I don't know what happened that got Doc riled, but you could tell like he picked him up outside the ring and slammed him into the ring post, and you, he was doing it for real. I I did I don't know what happened, what this guy did to ask for it, but after the match. Right after the match, Herbert Abrams jumps in the ring to calm Steve Williams down. You could tell Williams was ready to keep going after the match. Yeah, that's true. I'll have to seek that one out for you guys to say to watch. And in, in, uh, in this particular match, Sandman won with a drop kick off the top rope, kind of like a one-legged drop kick. And then uh, the match ended with kind of a pull-apart or a, a post-match in, in the entanglement between Sandman and the Rock and Rebel. Yeah, we haven't even talked about the Kodiak Bear. This this man, he was inspiring because I sit there, sat there and said, okay, if this guy can be a, a wrestler, maybe it's not my dreams of being a pro wrestler are not over yet, even though I turn 58 next month. This guy, what he was awful. I, he looked awful and he was awful. I thought he was a Jay York for the 90s. That's what I thought. <laughs> Oh, you might have you might have actually un- unearthed this guy's secret because that's what he looked like a seventy year old Jay York. <laughs> so so that's that's pretty much the whole show. I mean, what what do you what do you think uh, if you wanted to like final thoughts on the show itself? What what would you have to say? I was as soon as I laid eyes on Stevie Wonder Wonderful, I was convinced I was going to hate him, and I, I didn't. But the, the one thing he did, like I, he's everyone's got to have their gimmick, right? He does a post match interview, and he looks at the camera, and he goes, "And that was wonderful." I'm like, "Oh, dude, you almost <laughs> got through this without having me hate you, and you ruined it." Yeah, the, the, both both commentators were really really bad, but it, it's a pilot episode. I mean, you can't really expect too much, but uh, thankfully, we have tons of questions about Easter championship wrestling to talk about yes we do uh we asked our group for uh, questions on ecw and i'll tell you what well it's you do the first one steve okay i'll ask uh, jamie waldrop's question he says do you think it would have stood a better chance in the early days if they would have focused on building new talent instead of recycling old wwf talent in morocco snooker and names like that all right. Here's what I think about that. It used to be, to me, that made sense. Look, let's bring in Morocco. Let's bring in Snooker. Let's bring in big names. And then they'll see our core talent, our younger guys, our, you know, Glenn, whatever his name is. And the fans will like our product and they'll keep coming out. And it sounds good and it makes sense and it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way because what you're training the fans to do is stay home until until you get the big names like Morocco and Snuka. You know, don't come out just for the, the regular guys. Right. Yeah, I, I think you're right on that. I mean, we, we've seen that in WWE with all the uh, guys that they bring out for WrestleMania season, bring out Goldberg, uh, even though he, he wasn't a regular for 20 years or so. Yeah. All right, I'll tell you what. Conor McGrath asks, what was the smart fan consensus on ECW in this era? Was it a buzzworthy promotion or just another large Northeast indie? What were your thoughts on ECW in general, Steve? Well, in these early days, I th- I think it was just trying to, to fill that niche. I think that the there was a large group of fans like kind of what I had talked about earlier that long for the days of the uh, Bruno Koloff chain match or or those bloody uh, NWA shows at the uh, Philadelphia Arena in the uh, in or the Civic Center in the in the mid to late 80s uh, you know, fans were just tired of both promotions, but both major league promotions, and they wanted something different. And and I think, um, you know, moving away from this pilot episode, going into the more of the successful ECW, the Paul Heyman ECW, I think the reason that that really ended up succeeding, at least for a number of years, was that uh, 
and I, th- I think this is quite interesting too, guys like Paul Heyman, guys like Shane Douglas, they had come up through the, the, the normal way of coming up in the business, working their way up. Uh, Heyman had started out in places like the AWA and worked in Continental and worked in Memphis. And, and I'm, I'm sure in his mind, he thought like, once I get to WCW, I'll become a star and I'll, you know, rise up and, you know, my career will be fulfilled. And, you know, he got in that whole thing where he got lost in the shuffle and he, you know, got lost in power plays and Ric Flair was kind of in his way and other people and were in his Paulie way. And was being Paulie. And that too, that too. Uh, and, 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 and I know uh, with Shane Douglas, you know, he had major issues with Ric Flair and, and it seemed like some of the older talent was definitely holding the younger talent back. So once ECW established itself as this thing uh, and they, they started to get the flavor of ECW, uh, these guys realize that this is a place where we can flourish. We're in charge here. We can make it happen. And and I think I think at that point, the fans, like the people who are reading The Observer, uh, people who are really into wrestling, were really, really gravitating toward this. Just like how now with AEW, no matter how good or bad it is, a lot of people like AEW just because it's providing an alternative. So that's what I wanted to say on that issue. All right. I... Let me introduce myself to some of you. My name is John McAdam. I used to sell, trade and sell pro wrestling VHS tapes, right? Big part of my life. In 94, 95, I had someone ask me, and I was, I was friends with a guy, and he was like, you know, what should I get that is in demand? And, you know, I said, look, get ECW stuff. Get it for me, of course, but get it because if you have ECW stuff, you are you're going to have the thing that everyone wants to trade for, and you're going to be able to get whatever you want in a trade. And he writes to me like, you know, two three months back, and he's later, he's like, um, do you remember me because you gave me some great advice? ECW was on fire with. The in the tra- tape trading scene, the newsletter scene, whatever you want to call it. I mean, they loved it. They ate it up. People would travel from all over the country to go to Philadelphia and experience ECW. And we've talked about this on the show before. Paulie would take that that 15 minute match that was in reality a two star match, and he'd edit it. So, so that it was a six-minute, three-and-a-half-star match. He made it look way better than, when it, than it was, and that's his job as a promoter. But to answer Connor's question, I mean, it was the hip-in thing, and we're getting away from early ECW into mid-ECW, like 94-95, Sabu was on fire. He's not fondly remembered anymore people oh he's a spot monkey but his stuff was considered must see in the early mid 90s well i'll say this about sabu when when nitro began and going up against raw in those early days and and nitro from episode one was just loaded with as much all-star talent as you can imagine Mm-hmm. Sabu was the one that made me watch. I mean, I, yep. I, I just, I could not believe Sabu. I could not believe the flips he would do, the dives outside the ring, uh, breaking tables, <laughs> breaking things. And, you know, again, I, at this point, this has been so long. I don't know how many episodes he ended up being on that show, but uh, I, I was just blown away. And, and uh, I, I recently watched uh, that show that was on, it's on, it's on the Peacock to watch the rise and fall of ECW, which is another one of those WWF let's uh, skew history a little bit, but uh, there's a lot of good history on that show. And, and you see uh, him in ECW and with some of his wars he had with uh, uh, Taz and different opponents and, uh, I'm just blown away by Sabu. I mean, his, you know, his body, I'm sure he's in pain all the time now that he's middle-aged or whatever, but uh, what a performer. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, like I said, you know, he was nothing but spots, but I mean, the spots were fantastic. And I mean, what does that tell you? Like, you know, Nitro is just getting off the ground. Who do we need, Sabu? Right. Yeah. And, And at the time, I mean, he was not a... Really, I mean, amongst the hardcore fans, yeah, they knew who he was. But here he is on a show with Hogan and Luger and all the mainstream guys, and he was stealing the show. Yeah, exactly. And it just, you know, it shows you how hot he was. The WCW went out of their way to get him, and it shows you who Sabu was. He got fired right away. Right, right. 
So, so let me let me ask this question uh, from Bill Holtz, and I, I think only John McCadden may have the answer to this, or Dave Meltzer. Uh, did the company ever have a profitable year? That I do not know. I'll bet. I'll bet. Paulie doesn't even know because he supposedly was that loose with the accounting. Yeah. Um, my guess is that they may have had a profitable 95, maybe a, maybe a profitable 96. Those are the only possibilities. Um, I mean, they rate, they filled the house in Philadelphia. You know what? The more I think about it, I don't think so. Now I'm, now I'm thinking about all these, you know, crazy, the things Paulie did to save money stories, like uh, giving Chris Jericho a bereavement flight. And, uh, and like Chris is like, you know, re- finds out and he's like, I could get in a lot of trouble for this. And Paulie's like, no, no, don't worry about it. My uncle boy should die. Something. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. Uh, I, I agree with you. I, I, don't, I don't think there's any way that they had any profitable years. I mean, they had lots of, you know, high spots as far as the promotion and, you know, exciting times. But, yeah, I don't think they were ever uh, making money out for this. No, I think, you know, and Paulie probably put it best. It was too big to remain small, and it was too small to ever get really big. And, I mean, ECW, let's be honest, they had, like Smoky Mountain Wrestling, they had a little bit of a timing problem. Like, things were going good, and then the Monday Night Wars broke out. And then WWF and WCW are suddenly targeting their stars. So, and not only that, but they're, they're, they're taking eyeballs away and they're stealing ECW's formula. So a lot of it, a lot of it was timing for ECW. In the research I did for this, and maybe you could give us a little more intel on this if you have it. Uh, it seems that there's a lot of people that think that uh, Todd Gordon was the uh, inside source that to WCW was going to just kind of steal their wrestlers away. Have you ever heard that? Or you know anything about I that? I have heard that. And supposedly... It was the reason Todd Gordon ended up leaving the company. Yeah. Um, it was kind of like Paulie. You know, this is just the story I heard. But Paulie was like, you know, I found out you did this. You got to go or I'm getting my dad who's a lawyer involved. And they worked something out. Again, that's the story I heard. I'm not saying, you yeah. know, it's a thousand percent accurate. Yeah. yeah. And, and then there's two sides to any story. And I, I know uh, Todd's story is, is that uh, he was running his jewelry business. He had another business and his father got really ill, his elderly father. And he had to get you know, give the time to his father. And uh, so that's why he decided to step down. And, uh, but yeah, I, I think there is <laughs> where there's smoke, there's fire. So, uh, but uh, I think you owe me a question, John. Okay. I'll tell you what. I just want to read a comment from Ian Totten. I don't have a question, but it's amazing to me that the early shows are what hooked me. Although I couldn't start attending until they stopped running bars. He <laughs> made a, a young Ian Totten there back in the old days. A guy, a guy who needs to figure out how to get a fake ID, Ian Totten. <laughs> Apparently, he didn't read the back of the wrestling magazines. I'm disappointed. When I was 16, 17, I had three fake IDs. Come on, man. <laughs> Ryan Botwinick, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. How long would ECW have lasted if Eddie Gilbert stayed booking and Stevie Wonderful stayed on color commentary? I think the, the sec- second part of the joke is a knuck knuck little joke there. But uh, <laughs> I, have, Steve, have you seen that 1993 ECW? Um, no, I have not. Okay. Eddie Gilbert's booking was nothing short of horrendous. <laughs> I know that's hearsay to some people because Eddie Gilbert, he's been gone for almost 30 years. And Eddie Gilbert, I wouldn't say he was a friend, but he was always nice to me. He was a good guy. And when he was booking Continental in 88, uh, yeah, it was 88. You know, I mean, he just did all the great angles he saw as a kid, but he, the booking was really good. So he gained this reputation as a great booker. Then he was on the WCW uh, booking committee for a while, and Eddie had friends in the hard, you know, in the, the hardcores. I know he was friends with Dave Meltzer. I know he was friendly with uh, Wade Keller. But Eddie, you know, by the time he was booking ECW, I think he had become a little bit uh disenchanted with wrestling i think you know it was no longer his boyhood dream it was this thing he it was this 
Carney thing he did for a living, and I think it showed in his attitude. And the booking he did, it's available on Peacock. It, it was just horrible. It was just the Eddie Gilbert show. It was worse than Dusty Rhodes in 1987, 1988, as far as just booking himself to be a star. He was, you know, the unquestioned top star in the company. He was the king of Philadelphia. He was doing vignettes every show. And I knew about it when it happened, when, you know, Paulie Dangerously was in his booker and Eddie Gilbert was out as booker. And those two longtime best friends, I don't think they ever spoke to each other ever again after that. That's sad. yeah, and Eddie felt like Paulie had maneuvered his way, gotten in Todd Gordon's ear, and had Eddie tossed out the door. And Paul's side of the story was, no, Todd Gordon said to me, would you like to be the booker? I'm, I'm making a change. And Paulie said, yes. And But Eddie just never believed that. But I'll tell you what, if you watch the show and it's there, you can tell right away when the change was made, because not only was Eddie Gilbert not soaking up 30 minutes of the 45 minutes of television time, but it was like a breath of fresh air. Like Paulie had fresh new ideas like public enemy, for example, they're not remembered well, but it was a really cool gimmick. And, you know, it, was, it just went in a different direction. And you can, you know, like I said, if you watch it on Peacock, you can tell the exact episode because it was a, a different company. But, yeah, it was really sad because I, I'd been around those two and they were fun to be with. And now, you know, it's like, oh, my God, they hate each other. And, and people who were friends with Eddie sided with Eddie and vice versa. Well, that was a really good uh, informative answer there. Did, uh, did Eddie Gilbert actually stay on as a talent or did he just walk away from it completely? Eddie, let me tell you something. Eddie Gilbert burned so many goddamn bridges in the early nineties. <laughs> it was insane. And it, it can't always be someone else's fault. Eddie gets word that he's out as Booker and he does his final show in ECW. And after the show, he gets on the mic and he says, I'm out of the wrestling business. I'm done right now. I'm going to auction off all my wrestling gear. And he auctioned off his boots. He offered auctioned off his robe completely unplanned. And this is, I think this was after he was doing a promotion in Japan called Wing. And he and his brother, you know, double cross their opponents and get on the mic and say, you know, this promotion is dog shit. And we, yeah. And we, we offer our loyalty to Giant Baba. Hmm. And I, I almost hit my head. Honest to God, like Giant Baba is going to look at this and he's going to say, you know, these two guys, look what they just did for me. No, it's almost like they, they blackballed themselves from all Japan by even saying that. Wow. That, that's, that's quite a story. Um, and I, I feel so bad. I mean, the, the ending of the Eddie Gilbert story is so tragic. It really is, and I was friends with Brian Hildebrand, and Brian, you know, I, someone asked Jim Cornette. We did one. We went to one of the Smoky Mountain. I think they were called press conferences with, with Jim Cornette, and Jim Cornette, Eddie Gilbert was conspicuous by his absence, as Vince McMahon would say, <laughs> from Smoky Mountain Wrestling. I mean, it seemed like the most natural pairing in the world. So we're at one of these things, and, and someone asked Jim Cornette, you know, where's Eddie Gilbert? And Jim just kind of puts on and say, well, you know, Eddie and I were, you know, we don't always see eye to eye, and he didn't, you know, bury him or anything, but it made it kind of clear he didn't want him around. So then, of course, I'm, a, I'm alone with Brian Hildebrand. I'm like, what's going on with Jim and Eddie? And, 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 you know, Brian, with that kind of pause before you give the wrong answer kind of thing, he's like, uh, well, Jim and Eddie are, are, are just a little bit too much alike. But <laughs> I think Eddie would be really good here. And I've talked to Jim about it, and et cetera. So then, Eddie, they finally bring him in and they give him a noticeably small role, at least to start with. That he's teaming up with Glenn Jacobs, who, you know, now known as Kane, but then known as Unabomb. Mm-hmm. And they're starting a feud with the Rock and Roll Express. And Eddie looked like hell. I mean, his hair had almost completely fallen out. He had dyed it white. He wow. didn't look like he was in great shape. And he, his interviews were awful, which was so un-Eddie Gilbert-like, you know? Mm-hmm. He just... I, I didn't understand what he was doing. And then I hear that after the first taping, he has decided to leave be- to become the booker of Puerto Rico. And then, you know, the next time I see Brian Hildebrand, you, you could tell Brian was crushed. Brian had, you know, probably 
ask Hornette multiple times to give Eddie just an opportunity, and Eddie just goes out and blows it as quickly as, as he possibly could. That's a sad story. Uh, uh, I want to emphasize, I liked Eddie Gilbert. I, I, I was around him three or four times, and the guy was great, but it seemed like... I, there were rumors that Eddie had some drugs. There were more than rumors. I'd seen Eddie in action, okay? And it seems like those demons really got to him at the end. Mm. Well, um, Nicolaitis. Wow, that's certainly <laughs> <what it's laughs> Yeah, but that was very informative, John. That's a great answer. Uh, uh, Dr. Nicolaitis asked, did Shane Douglas prove that he could have and should have been used as a main event star in WCW or WWF? Or was he a big fish in a small pond that found his niche in ECW? Uh, I'll, I've mentioned this on the show before. When I saw uh, Shane Douglas uh, in Southeast and I thought he was a real talent. I saw him and I said, you know, this guy has something. He could make it big in this business. Then he came to WCW as one of the dynamic dudes. Obviously, it, he was doing what he had to do. Uh, and he was a good wrestler. You could tell he was a good wrestler. He's a good looking guy. Stuck with that gimmick, but not forever. And then he went back to WCW, did the thing with Ricky Steamboat. Uh, before that, he was in the WWF in an underneath role. And I've said the story before. I mean, I was hanging out with a guy in the wrestling business, and I was like, I think Shane Douglas is a real talent. I think he is a – if they if the WWF hired him and made him the intercontinental champion, they would be making a good move. That's how good I think this guy is. And the guy looked at me like I had a disease. Like, <laughs> what's the matter with you? Don't you know about this guy? He's a pain in the ass. And I know where that comes from. And I know that, you know, Shane had his own problems, a, a unique set of problems with Ric Flair, which kind of made me surprised he ever went back to WCW. But so, so to answer that, that question, I thought Shane, did I have, did he, do I think he had the talent to main event in WWF or WCW? No. Did I, did I think he had the talent to be the top star in a place like ECW? Did I think he had the talent to have a role in the WWF? Absolutely. I, I think uh, from watching, I, you know, I watched some matches today, and, and I've, of course, seen him over the years. Uh, when he got to be this the size he was in his peak of uh, ECW, I, I think he could have been in, in WWF. And, you know, let, let's say hypothetically we swap out uh, Triple H for Shane Douglas. I, I could I could see him in that role. I could see him as, uh, you know, Stephanie's husband. I mean, I mean he could uh, pull that off and, and – um, you know, I think, you know, Kurt Hennig was a way better worker than Shane Douglas was. But, I mean, their body types, their look is very similar. I, I think uh, Shane Douglas, you know, they gave him that goofy Dean Douglas thing at one point in WWF when he was there briefly. But it, it had they had some good, smart bookers there, they, they should have made use of him. Well, there was more to it than that. Uh, Shane Douglas allegedly fell out of favor with uh, Shawn Michaels, Kevin Nash, uh, Scott Hall quite quickly. You know, kind of like just like he did with Jim Cornette, Ric Flair, Arn Anderson. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I, I always thought he was a talent. And when he turned heel in ECW, when he was when he was with uh, Sherry Martell, like that had future star written all over him. And again, a, a major player in WWF, WCW. I mean, it, it, wrestling is like anything else. You got to you got to fit in in the locker room, especially when you first get there. And you know, Shane just didn't. And I think to your to your point about uh, kind of the uh, toxic a atmosphere that was there at the time, uh, you know, timing is everything. Uh, had had he come in maybe later, like around the time that The Rock was really popular, I mean, The Rock The Rock was a victim of some of that hazing and some of that uh, bad uh, <laughs> bad stuff that was going on in, in WWF at that time with those. Uh, guys who were ball busters and who were really uh, like a pack of dogs there. It had Shane come in maybe around two, 2000, 2001, maybe he'd gotten that big push, but you know, timing is everything. If, if you're not there at the right time, you're not going to make it. You know, one thing I want to point out to people, like when, whenever someone talks about, you know, wrestler X could have been a big star in an, an alternative universe before you scoff. And I have to remind myself of this sometimes. Remember, 
John Paul Levesque in WCW. Remember Terra Rising <laughs> right. before that? Yeah. Who would have guessed this guy would have been wrestler of the decade at some in the, the next decade? But he was. Yeah. Yeah. And you just, you know, with different circumstances, I think, you know, Shane may have come along too late. Yeah. When I think about it, if he was still, if he was 10 years younger and he was doing the territories, I really think he could have been a big star. And while we're on the topic of ECW, I think another guy that uh, really they, they sh- Vince should have uh, done more with as far as in, in the ring was Taz. I mean, they, they gave him that huge debut. They had him beat Kurt Angle in his debut match. And then before you know it, and again, I know size is always an issue in WWF, but before you know it, Taz is a member of the of the commentating team. And he was good at that, too, and he's still good. But, you know, you figure with all the push they gave him and how over he was in ECW, they probably could have got more mileage out of him as a wrestler. All right, more Taz stuff. When he was the Taz maniac doing indies and doing um, – Savoldi probably. Savoldi, when he was doing uh, Smoky Mountain Wrestling, Mm -hmm. one of my friends in the business is like, this guy is a real talent. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I I just didn't see it. I didn't argue. Mm -hmm. I'm like, he's good in the ring, but yeah. And then one day, ECW, they've got this guy, you know, Peter Sinerka, I think his name is, doing commentary. And then they turn around and, hey, this is a guy formerly known as the Tasmaniac. And then that talent came out in, what was it, 99 or 2000 when they were doing the vignettes for him in WWF? My girlfriend at the time was a dietitian in the hospital and like, you know, people found out, oh, yeah, you know, her boyfriend's a mega wrestling fan. So I go over one day and like these guys find me and they're like, what's that number 13 on the TV in WWF? I was like, uh, do you know who Taz and ECW is? They're like, oh, yeah. I'm like, well, he's coming in. That's it. <laughs> they must have thought you were a genius. <laughs> <laughs> I had them fooled. <laughs> All right. I want to read Brian Damon's, Brian Damon's question. I love this one. How do you like my new suit? <laughs> Jason, the sexiest man on earth. I don't care what anyone says i absolutely loved him he was beyond funny i thought the gimmick was great him singing what was he singing into like looking at the belt as a mirror (laughs) he was singing some love song to himself (laughs) in the mirror which was the belt and he absolutely killed me i i don't care what anyone says he was great (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Stephen Piccarillo asks, what exactly was Eddie's blood chemistry at this time? <laughs> Probably not very good. Uh, you know what? I, I have another Eddie Gilbert story. They, this guy, Gordon Scazzari, was starting a promotion, and he was had a, a taping in Lowell. That was the AWF? The AWF. And I went to this thing, and it was nuts. I Like, um... My, I was going with one of my friends, and the tickets were ten dollars each. I'm like pulling, going into my wallet to, you know, give this guy a twenty, and one of them recognized me. He's like, "Oh, John McAdam, just come in." It's like he just threw twenty bucks in the trash, pal. <laughs> wow, they, they they knew, Eddie, they, they, they knew getting you in would uh, have uh, lots of uh, box office appeal there. Let me tell you, I wish I had, I had taken notes. I wish I, I had taken notes on this night because it was beyond crazy. But Eddie was supposed to book this show for Gordon Scazzari. You know, Eddie had that reputation in the business as, you know, oh, what a great mind, whatever. And he was supposed to come up, fly up from Dallas and book. And instead of doing that, he calls Gordon to say he missed his airplane, but he'll fax up his booking plans. Gordon can just take him from there. And Eddie just faxed up a bunch of junk to Gordon. So he took his nine, he took Gordon's $900 and sat home and laughed about it. And I, I really think in a way, trying to teach Gordon a lesson, of course, at Eddie Gilbert's game that, you know, you don't belong in the wrestling business, pal. Yeah, I think um, I think Tito Santana and Sergeant Slaughter actually ended up doing the booking for him for that brief uh, TV run that he had as uh, the AWF. I don't, I'm not sure if they ever made it to TV. I know some of the footage is on uh, YouTube, and I mean the night was a complete disaster. And I, I was talking to Gordon, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm going to get." Uh, 
ABC owned the family channel and Gordon's telling me that the family channel is going to give him $90,000 a week to pro- provide a, wrestling, a pro wrestling show for them. And I was just like, why does the family channel want a pro wrestling show? So I'm like, okay, that uh, that's the last time I believe anything Gordon Scazzari says. There, there was um, there was a very brief time. I, it must have been just maybe a few weeks that the Christian Broadcasting Channel, which ended up becoming something else, maybe it became the Family Channel. But the Christian Broadcasting Channel briefly ran WCCW World Class Championship Wrestling, and uh, I, I saw the Von Erichs, I saw Bugsy McGraw on there, and. Uh, it just it just blew my mind. Uh, you know, it's it basically they had like the seven hundred club, and then they had wrestling on. It was weird. Uh, Lou sent us a question. Don't forget that Scazzari allegedly paid Jeff Gaylord to beat up Eddie. This is going to be a, 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 a what's the word I'm looking for? A lead into something else. Uh, I believe that story was true. I believe you know Eddie had talked about it. He's just like one day I'm hanging out in the dressing room with Gordon, with Gordon Scazzari. Next thing I know, the guy's swinging at me. I think it was on Eddie's shoot tape as well. And you know the, they people separated them and whatever. And Eddie was saying like you know why didn't the guy just tell me we could we'd split the money and that would be it. I, I think I think there's a great uh, film out there about uh, Eddie Gilbert's life, uh, and uh, I wouldn't do the his whole life, but just that uh, that relationship he had with that uh, who's that super fan? Is it Terrence Mahalik uh, or Mahalik or uh, the Canadian guy? I don't know this person, but I do know that Eddie did a shoot interview with friend of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Bob Barnett. And I'm going to, and I'm not sure if it's still for sale, but it was a really good interview. I'm going to tie this in with ECW. Mm-hmm. I'm on the phone with Bob Barnett, like 90, 91. And Bob's like, I don't know why there's not a, why promotions keep calling themselves like New England Championship Wrestling or Eastern Championship Wrestling. Why don't they just call it hardcore wrestling? Right. Oh, Bob, Bob was ahead of his time. Yeah, he was ahead of the curve for sure. I, I had never even thought of something like that before, but that's what ECW turned into extreme championship wrestling. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it just, it just really resonated with, with the general public. I mean, we had the, the death of Jerry Springer a couple of weeks ago. And I mean, <laughs> the, the, the Jerry Springer TV show and, and ECW, uh, it'd be, it would be kind of hard to tell them apart. They were so similar. All right, I'll tell you what, Steve. One more question for you, for you, and I'm going to do one more question from Sean Ryan. Okay, uh, let's see here. Uh, Matthew uh, mentally is asking, uh, why were they running their TV out of a sports bar? Was there really no alternative venues in town willing to take a chance on this? Uh, well, th- this first show I don't think was out of a sports bar. I don't know about the ed- future ones. Uh, the few they they were doing shows at sports bars, and you know, I, I mean, I I don't know what the I know there's a, a powerful Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission, and I know they made you have insurance, and I'm I'm just wondering what the insurance alone is going to be like uh, having pro wrestling at a bar, right. but that's what they did, and they had TV tapings from there, and it didn't look terrible, and again, that it's very important that it doesn't look terrible. We are what are your thoughts, Steve? Um, well, you know, we were talking about a real low, low rent pr- uh, promotion that doesn't have a ton of cash to, uh, go to a big arena like Vince's shows. Uh, uh I mean, they were going to do shows at, you know, smaller venues like high schools or, uh, you know, Masonic temples, what have you. Uh, so th- it's not like they could, had really their pick of the litter as far as choices. Okay, I'll I'll tell you what. I'll go with the last question from Sean Ryan. Any metal maniac or rock and rebel tidbits or stories, Steve? Do you have any? Uh, metal maniac isn't that the guy that kind of toured with Jimmy Snuka a lot, and the two of them went on the road and did lots of shows together. Yeah, lots of lots of a lot of things together. <laughs> allegedly, <laughs> yeah, Snuka in Morocco. Yeah. All right, so so you never interacted with either of these gentlemen? Not me, no. All right, well, I I did. Jeff Gaylord, look, rest in peace. I don't have anything bad to say about the guy. He was nice to me, but he was stupid, man. He was so low IQ. I mean, it's like, you know, you probably belong in a cage, sir. That's how (laughs) dumb he was. (laughs) Metal Maniac made 
made uh, what's his name uh, Jeff Gaylord look like a genius. Mm-hmm. This guy was incredibly dumb. I mean, probably the most low IQ person I've ever interacted with. He calls me up. He's like, oh, yeah, I hear you're taking bookings and, you know, I want to be part of it. I'm like, oh, great. You know, let me send you my P.O. box. Send me up a table. Check it out. Well, I was trained by the great Don Magnificent Morocco, sir. And, you know, I I, I can have him give you a call and, and get my get you my he'll tell you all how great I am or whatever. I'm like, yeah, I don't need to do that. Just send up a tape. I'll check it out. And he's like going back and forth with me. He's like, no, just call Magnificent Morocco. Don't you know who he is and his word? And it's just, you know, like, yeah, just send a tape. And he he kept going again. And I'm not – I can't even – do an impersonation of just, you know, what a thick skull this guy had. Just ridiculous. I nothing against the guy. I hope he's doing well wherever he is. <laughs> but, you know, I really don't care if, you know, you drove Snooker in Morocco around. <laughs> it, you know, <laughs> does not affect me. Steve, thank you for coming on. Thank you for uh, making a, a great suggestion for a show topic. This was fun. Yeah, it was a nice diversion, and uh, we'll get back to kind of our uh, home base with the 83 WWF very soon. Yeah, we've we've got a lot of good stuff. Hopefully, we'll be able to do that next week. I've got like over 40 minutes of rare audio, so you know, hopefully we'll be doing that. I want to thank Lightning Lou Kippelman for all of the great work he does producing this show. I want to thank uh, Brian Lass for giving me this, this forum, and... Thank all of you for listening. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day.